Hello, this is Melissa Hale Spencer, the editor of the Altamont Enterprise. And we are doing the second year of what has become a tradition at the Enterprise. We have the top experts gathered at the table, the top experts in local news. And they are, of course, Enterprise reporters. And we're going to be taking a Janus-faced look where we are looking both backwards at the year that is closing out, 2018, and maybe a hint from the expertise around the table of what might be unfolding in our towns. So just to introduce our experts, we have Elizabeth Floyd Mayer, who lives in Gilderland, grew up in Gilderland, lives, breathes, eats Gilderland, and covers Gilderland. We have H. Rose Schneider, who takes on the Herculean task of covering all four Helderberg Hill Towns, Burn, Knox, Westerlo, and Rensselaerville. And finally, we have Sean Mulcairin, who covers the town of New Scotland, the villages of Altamont and Borysville, and somehow manages to find time to do big, broad, in-depth look at regional issues as well. So what we're going to do is just start off, I went through our stack of papers and picked out some of the main headlines month by month, but we're a free-flowing group, and we might just get off and talking about reporters' favorite stories for the years or what they most cared about in their coverage. But just to start with the new year, if you can remember back to January, we had Elizabeth writing about huddles that had formed locally. Can you tell us what huddles were and why they were news? Mm, Huddles grew out of the Women's March um, that followed the election of uh, Donald Trump. And they were, um, they are a way for um, small, various sizes, but very local groups to get together and try to work in a practical way on issues that, um, you know, keep uh, alive the the goals of, um, you know, helping women's equality and and other issues that, um, in some. Cases, um, you know, the, the current administration um, doesn't, you know, things like climate, climate change, and things that the administration doesn't uh, believe are are real or important. So I think that seems part of a trend we've seen across our towns of local people getting very interested since Trump was elected in national issues that perhaps had been on the sidelines before. So um, Sean had a story that first month of the year on a trend that we kind of noticed but hadn't looked at, and that's the burgeoning tech ed field. Students who are choosing to study in a different way. Can you tell us what you found out about those programs or some of the things that were most interesting? Um, I remember the phrase you came up with one of the people had was, the some college problem. What is that? <laughs> so that was um, the. I took a ride over to Capital Region BOCES and spent a few hours with the students going around to the different classrooms and taking a look at what they're doing. Um, I was speaking with the administration who talked about the problem of some college where almost, I think, a third to maybe even more of kids who end up in college 
only go for a few years, and they come out with only some college and no real skills. And huge debts. And huge debts. The selling point of the Capital Region BOCES CTE school was that kids will learn a trade or a skill and then go on to either work or college. And what they stressed at Capital Region BOCES was that an overwhelming majority of graduates go on to some kind of post-secondary education so that Votech nowadays is no longer a refuge for burnouts and kids are learning serious skills that they're taking with them to college so they can have another added skill. Yeah, we're seeing that in all of our schools. It's um, it's a really strong trend. And Rose in January had just a charming story on Elizabeth Gary. Can you tell us who she is and why you wrote about her? Um, well, I'm trying to think back to it, honestly. And remember, um, Elizabeth Gary was appointed as a um, judge in New York State. And she's now the presiding now judge for the Appellate Division 3rd District, mm-hmm. but she grew up... She grew up in the town of Bern, and um, yeah, is still has... She now lives in western New York, but she still has um, quite a connection there in to the hill town. She owns property in, I believe, in Bern, and people still know her as Harry Gary's daughter. Um... So it was, it was a really pleasant conversation with her. Yeah, she just came across as such a strong person, but yet such a humble person. Mm-hmm. Well, moving into February, Elizabeth had the start of what turned into a year-long, and it's still going strong, look at development in Gilderland. She wrote about two of the six Gilderland golf courses closing. And just tell us a little about the whole arc of your year, Elizabeth, when it comes to development. We also in February, I believe, had the arrest of um, Richard Sherwood, which started another huge story (laughs) that that continues. Um, But, um, yeah, the uh, development. Yeah, several uh, golf courses, the smaller ones in the area um, closed, or, well, were, so the one over here on Hearst Road by the transfer station, that closed. And the other one was preparing to close. Hiawatha Trails was preparing. And those were both smaller golf courses, smaller than the town-owned golf course. Um, and, you know, golf golfing is changing. The de- demographics are changing. And people are getting older, and then young people are not taking it up. So people were finding that they didn't have a lot of traffic. Um, and the person who owns Hiawatha Trails, um, Jeffrey, I think his name is Jeffrey Epps, Jeffrey Van Epps, um, he, uh, he says that the best um, solution, the best, the best thing that could happen to his land is that um, uh, this proposed facility uh, of senior senior independent living apartments that should come in there, which would allow 25 or, or so acres of the property to be dedicated over to the town for public use. Um, so, yeah, that kind of introduced, that was one of the first projects that started um, this, you know, that, that, that was the, the at the forefront of this wave of um, 
apartment projects that came in and that is still going on. We, we, we seem to be reporting on a new one every week. And yes, you do, and you're breaking most of those stories. And it led, it spawned the <clears throat> start of a citizens group, which is the first one we've had since the Crossgate protests. Um, would tell us a little about the citizens group that yeah. came out of that. Well, it's an impressive... Um, it's a very impressive group um, of people from all different walks of life that are basically that live around uh, the hamlet of Gildeland, around Presidential Estates Campus Club. You know, there are doctors, lawyers, um, judges, um, you know, teachers, people who knit very, very well and who knit throughout the meetings. Um, there are just a real <laughs> wide array of, of interesting people there and um, speaking up at every meeting um, to applause from one another <laughs> and um, trying to suggest that the town should um, take a look at its own policies about development and perhaps slow down the pace of uh, approving Projects and that if um, if there is no way for the town to slow it down, if the town's zoning code makes it so that the town needs to approve every project that comes along that suits its zoning code, you know that that fits its zoning code, then maybe the zoning code should be changed. I think one of their big problems is that the zoning code allows for independent living residential projects, and so. What what the what this group, the Gildan Citizens for Responsible Growth, has learned to you know to its dismay is that one of these projects, you know, a, a, a senior living facility, you know, with 200 apartments, can basically be built in any residential neighborhood in Gildan on any street, you know. Um, so nothing is safe from one of these things coming right, in. Right. The core on your idea street. behind that was to let people age in their own neighborhoods, right. but I see that it's become a problem. You've up how many new apartment so, proposals? Yeah, there were. When we wrote about um, apartment proposals in general in September, there were 1,200, and since then, it, the number has gone up to over 1,600 um, apartments. So that's if you count together apartments, senior apartments, and all that, you know, all, everything together. Quite an explosion. Another topic that first was broached in our paper in February and has been coming up bubbling to the surface in many different ways. Both Rose and Sean had stories that had to do with the opioid crisis. Rose had written about a challenge that the Albany County Executive um, Daniel McCoy had with Big Pharma, and Sean took a trip to the Albany County Jail at the time that Tonko this is Congressman Paul Tonko, um, had introduced a a bill that was meant to help addicts in prison and actually talk to one of the inmates, which was quite a stunning interview. Do either of you have thoughts either about those particular stories or the opioid crisis in general? Well, I mean, going to Albany County Jail is an experience in and of itself. Having never, I was brought home by the cops once when I was a teenager, so I've never had any real. <laughs> any real experience with it um, but it was really interesting and it really seems like Albany County is kind of on top of programs like addiction and I know that they have a pretty good um, I forget the other one right now but with the Sharps program they help um, you know inmates with addiction 
they help them get clean. And then I know, if I remember correctly, what Congressman Tonko's bill would do would extend a an inmate's ability to receive um, health benefits prior to exiting prison so that they will not have that window or lag in between where they can go out, get in trouble, and start using again. And Rose, do you <laughs> want to comment a little on, it wasn't just McCoy, but a kind of movement to hold the drug companies responsible um, for the opioid crisis? Um, yeah, it was, I think, possibly, I'd have to look it up, but I think it was possibly in the hundreds of different um, plaintiffs going against the drug companies. And looking at the legal documents for it, it was the the things that they were, you know, I don't know if I want to say alleging, you know, that was in the documents against the pharmaceutical companies was some of the stuff was pretty if I remember, it was pretty shocking um, the way that they had been pushing for doctors to prescribe, um, you know, opiates back in the, um, I believe it was the 2000s. And it was interesting, though, to look at it from, like, this local perspective of seeing, like, the county executive going to, I don't know if it was Washington or it was Ohio, because it was an Ohio-based um, judge and looking up, like, uh, news from the Ohio newspapers to find out what was going on there. Um, So that was a very interesting look at how all these different local um, entities were coming together nationally. So that was a very interesting look. And then moving into March, well, you're (laughs) still at the microphone, um, you had, we devoted our whole front page to it. It was such a fascinating story. Um, It centered on a single veteran who had hoarded ammunition and guns, but um, you just did a stunning portrait of how his wife coped with it and problems in the system for getting help with mental health issues. Can you just kind of refresh our listeners to to the things you discovered in doing that? Um, well, I don't know if we want to talk about the, the process of sort of developing the relationship with talking to the wife. No, um, I think just about the things you discovered that were interesting for those of us in the public that weren't aware, I certainly wasn't, of, um, you think of the VA as being able to handle veterans' problems, mm-hmm. and um, it really forced the wife to have her husband arrested in order to try to get the help that she felt and seemed was very much needed. I think it was interesting that she was an, an engineer, and she... I remember talking to her and saying to her, I'm like, you seem very, like, already very knowledgeable about something that's, you know, in the psych- psychological, in the medical field. And she's like, well, I, you know, it's what I do. <laughs> my, she's like, I do my research. But she had to go and kind of find this stuff out for herself 
and find information out on our own. And it was just interesting that the resources for them wasn't there. And I think it was also interesting, though, I don't know, that... Um, I don't know how to word it, but basically... It, it was interesting to hear... I don't know how to put it. Um, you know, he he needed help and, you know, basically didn't know how to ask for it and she didn't know how to get him to understand. He needed, you know, needed that because help. That's part of the sickness, mm-hmm. part of the psychological mm-hmm. problems. But it was, yeah, but it was also like the stigma around it. And I think I remember her saying that people told her, like, you should just leave him. Why do you, you know, if I'm remembering correctly, um... And you know that the that the stigma was there for yes. mental illness, and I think it's starting to go away. I think with the and luckily in the age of the internet, where people are more, in some ways, can be a little bit more intimate about mental illness. That sort of thing is starting to go away, but it's still you know it's still there. That people don't want to well, you know. I'm hoping your story would help <laughs> in making it people yeah. think of it the way they do a physical illness, not mm-hmm. something that's your guilt or your shame, but something that needs to be cured. So Elizabeth started another chain that lasted all year in March, and that was the Dr. Krauts House, <laughs> which um, if you could just briefly tell us a bit about why that became such uh, I wrote several editorials on it. You did a number of stories. Just tell us a little about that. Um, so the Crown's House is, is one of the, I guess, few tangible um, connections to the Civil War that we have in the in the East Coast, you know, in the um, in New England, in, in you know this area, New York State. Um, so it's um, you know it, it dates I, I forget when, but from you know Civil War soldiers, people on their way to the Civil War, or coming back, uh, some some doubt about which which it is, but um, being treated by Dr. Crounce there, um, and he was Altamont's first doctor, right? Um, and the house had, was bought ten years ago by the town and the village for the price of the back tax is on it, 40000 or so, and um, it has been, um, it, there were great hopes for it in the beginning, and then in the last number of years, it's been uh, pretty much ignored and neglected, and, um, you know, holes, a big hole has opened up in the roof, and, and um, it's been just exposed to the elements for years now. As the town and the village try to figure out what, if anything, they should do to fix it, and how much it would cost, and whether people will agree to pay for that. Um, so there's been a lot of a lot of um, discussion and a lot of back and forth and they've put it up for sale and there was one th- person that was maybe going to buy it and that kind of, there was one citizens group that was thinking about buying it. Yes, a citizens group historic Altamont plans to keep going into the future to help with preserving Altamont's history but you wrote a stunning story about the man that they had counted on, uh, Jay Cougar White Cloud being all harnessed in and putting the tarp on the house when yellow jackets stung him and he had to wait a day and in that time they were told they could proceed. The town so, found out that they were up on the roof yeah. and said you can't be up on the roof and so then yeah, it kept snowing and raining and snowing and raining and there, there may now be someone who's interested in 
taking over this project. And we will be following up on that. Also that month, Sean started a journey that no one else was on and no other media had picked up. It had to do with a Voorheesville basketball coach. And in March, Mr. Barron sued the school district to be reinstated. So can you just tell us, Sean, a little about the arc of that story and where we might be in the future there? So... Coach Robert Barron had been the coach of the Voorheesville varsity girls basketball team for about 10 years. Uh, he started off with a lot of success. I think he won a state championship. He had quite a few middling years, um, and I think he kind of got a little bit better at the end. He was known as a stern coach that was hard on his players. Um, he wanted the best from them. He he himself, you know, he expected it. He he would give them, you know, he would give them his all if they would give him if they would give them his theirs. Excuse me. Um, he in November of 2017, on the Tuesday before Thanksgiving, at a planning at a school board meeting at seven in the morning, he submitted his resignation. Um, we found out about it because we got an anonymous phone call from a parent who told us that something may have happened with a player. And when we confronted the superintendent, Brian Hunt, uh, he told us that the situation had happened, he was investigating it, which led to that Tuesday meeting where he resigned. Fast forward to March, he sued the school for a number of different things, um, which kind of grew with every success, every file filing. Um, but he wanted his job back. He was suing for his reputation. He's um, well known in the Voorheesville community, and he felt that what he, what people were talking about, what he may have been accused of was not so great. In the court filings, it came out that he had tried to set up practice for the week after Thanksgiving or Christmas, and one of his star players said that she couldn't make it at the last minute. He said something to the effect of, if I had a gun, I'd shoot you, to which he actually, in the deposition, said that he said... He meant it in jest, but the player took it a different way and went to her mother, I believe, who was a teacher in the school. And that started the whole ball rolling where he got fired. And this all came out in the court documents. He also made the claim in the deposition that the same girl was bullying other people, which led to a different investigation, which led nowhere and as of July there were no other court filings and a new coach has taken over subsequent to the coach who took over for Coach Barron's so they are on their third coach in two seasons Thank you and Sean will continue to follow that story Rose, in April, had a story that fit in a year. (laughs) 
And it was about conversion therapy, which is something that I was completely unfamiliar even existed. Can you tell us a bit about the viewpoints that you gathered on that and what the county ended up doing? Yeah. um, Well, I was thinking about this because I just checked on my phone a bit, and I know not to backtrack, but the first question that you had with me about Elizabeth Gary, um, I realized I kind of skimmed over it. And what was the the other interesting thing about herself, and this is sort of relevant, is that she was the, I think in New York State, I'm going to look at it again, um, the first openly lesbian presiding justice in the state, which she had said in the past that her identity shouldn't be a defining factor and a judge. But I think when I spoke to her later on, she said it is still historic historic, um, which I guess leads into the next thing about conversion therapy, which is when um, I was skimming the um, agenda for um, the Albany County Legislature, and I saw this item that said um, basically a proposal to create a law that would ban conversion therapy for minors in Albany County, and I believe I brought that forth you know, to you, and we were both thought this. It's 2018 in a relatively progressive county. Where on earth would conversion therapy, you know, fit in? Fit in here? Where, you know, where would it exist? Do you want me to define what conversion therapy sure. is? Okay, so conversion therapy is essentially, um, and you know, psych- many psychological associations don't consider this therapy they denounce it but it's basically an an effort um to um change someone's sexuality someone's um sexual orientation or gender identity um it can be done through some kind of sort of either like a religious entity or it can be done through therapy um there i believe um uh I'm my recollection recollection of this is fuzzy, but I you know there's some pretty um horrible ways people have done in the past of trying to get someone to um, you know change their um, sexual orientation or gender identity and it, it's been debunked but um and you talked to someone who had been yeah well, that was interesting as I was trying to find. It's something that I was using different search terms to try to find, uh, you know, because there's different things that, that's code for conversion therapy. And I was, like, searching the Internet and trying to find it. Um, and I searched just Albany conversion therapy, and I found that a um, former, I believe, councilman, um, common councilman in Albany, um, Judd Crasher, grew up in Bern. And he was no longer a minor. He was 18, but he was still in high school. He had been approached um, by two people who found out that he had recently come out as gay, and they, um, you know, were told him that they wanted him to consider going through this conversion therapy. And he, I spoke to Mr. Crasher, and, you know, he went over basically this happening. And I, I don't believe he's particularly he's not very old I'm I'm not quite sure how old he is but I I don't believe it was that long ago that this occurred um 
And the other kind of stunning thing um, related to this is I was putting out calls to different places, and one call that I put out to was an organization called Courage International. And Courage International isn't, it's doesn't, it's not conversion therapy, but it's basically a support group for people abstaining from having same-sex same sex relationships. Um, and someone actually called me Wednesday night before we were going to publish. I remember because I was waiting to go get food um, with my boyfriend, and we, um, I basically left the line, um, which... He wasn't too happy about and, you know, basically talked to this guy in my car, um, like, with my boyfriend driving me home and then sitting down and continuing to talk to him for, I must have been over an hour, about his, you know, basically his viewpoint, which is that he, um, you know, he said that, you know, he hadn't gone through conversion therapy himself, but he knew people who had and he was in favor of it. Um, And... It was a, it was a very, a very interesting conversation to have. I'll I'll, I'll put it that way, um, and they did ultimately in the Albany County Legislature um, pass this, you know, um, law to ban conversion therapy and just for minors for children. Um, so it was just interesting to find that even in a place where you you think that this doesn't exist anymore, that there are people who not too long ago thought that it would be better to, um, um, you know, tell a teenager that he should try to find ways to not be gay or, you know, someone who, you know, is gay but feels that that is wrong and that they should abstain from that. You know, it's still, it still exists and it's still out there. So it, yeah, was, it was a fascinating yeah, look it was on an interesting all look. angles. And Sean, the next month, did another look at a county bill, and this was about paid sick leave, where in typical Sean fashion, he set it in a context of larger issues. Can you just recall a little about... Um, the, the paid sick leave bill? The county was trying to require companies that worked in the county to offer paid sick leave to their workers. Um, the report cited by the county said that somewhere between 30 and 40 percent of workers in Albany County did not have access to paid sick leave. Um, it became a real issue last year because the flu epidemic was the worst in decades. Um, it basically came down to labor versus capital. The businesses in the area, as well as the local not-for-profits, came out against the paid sick leave, saying that it was going to put them in the red and that they couldn't afford all of this extra money for these workers to help them stay healthy. Workers made the argument that, no, it actually helps us because we get to stay home. Um, Somewhere between, I want to say, 18 and 30, 
municipalities and states have instituted their own paid sick leave um, laws and study after study have shown that there is no effect on business working profit when you offer a few extra days of paid sick leave um but I don't even know where it went from. It will be following yeah. up. Here's the thing. Our time is almost up, and we're not even halfway through the year. But that's because our reporters, as you can see, do depth. And they do intelligent, thoughtful analysis. But I'd like to conclude, because I know Elizabeth said she had a favorite story she wanted to talk about. I don't know if Rose and Sean do or not. But if you do, great. And if not, We'll just hear from Elizabeth, because lots of the stories that mean the most to us as reporters and sometimes to the community aren't the ones with the big headlines on the front page. There are things that we come across um, just human being to human being. So so I had two favorite stories this year that were sort of obscure. You know, obscure. I mean, they weren't like, you know, of great import to larger numbers of people, but um, one was... Um, they were smaller stories, but one was um, a story about um, the two Chen brothers who were killed in that quadruple homicide a few years ago on Western Avenue, um, and it was a... Their parents were killed with them. Yes, the parents were killed with them, um, and uh, it was a Chinese family living in Gilderland, and... Um, there's a teacher at Gildan Elementary School who had one of the brothers in his class for two years. For uh, he was in the second year of, of the same teachers, you know, t- having the same teacher again for the for the next grade. Um, and the, so he, the boy was killed um, at that time. And the, the teacher did a lot of different things with his students to remember the the boy, and um, it, it talked to the teacher and. Um, learned a lot of the things that the children had done in honor of the boy that was killed and learned a lot about the two boys that were killed and just how much the teacher loved him, how much he loved his student who was killed. Um, so that story I, I, I liked. Um, I, I, I mean, it sounds awful, but I mean, I, I, it, it was moving to me to talk to that teacher and to learn about those boys who we didn't know anything about before. Um, it was moving for all of us. They loved gardening and Legos. And um, anyway, the, the, uh, the other story um, that I in, enjoyed doing was a story about. Um, it was for our home and garden section, and it was. Um, it was a story that came to us because uh, a person had called us saying that he had had things stolen from his room at the Grand in Gildeland Center. So we started to look into it and um, found out some, you know, that was a little small, tiny part of the story, but it became a, a house story about what it's like for someone who's a massive collector of items to have to compress their life into half a room at a nursing home. And um, he was really a character who loved Johnny Cash and um, and stars, country stars in general, and had met lots of them and recounted over and over the times he had met them, and um, just had so much memorabilia and paraphernalia having to do with with stars and, and country western music. Anyway, um, I had stopped over there today, coincidentally, to try to give him some chocolates because. Um, you know, I just really felt for him that he um, is there just by himself, doesn't really have too much family that he's in contact with. And I learned that he had died just three weeks after that story uh, ran. So 
Well, thank you for writing it, Elizabeth, because now we can have that to remember him. I think we you said his obituary was just three his lines long. Three lines so long. How nice we to have that portrait. No services. Yeah, he was a character, memorable. So, Rose, did you have a favorite story you wanted to share? I think the most memorable one, and maybe this is just because it is more recent than the others, is. Um, I guess the, the two most recent stories, um, both centered around agriculture, and first being the story about the Knox dairy farmer who had to give up, you know, running a dairy farm. And actually, the thing I one of the things I like about it is because um, it kind of came together very organically. Elizabeth, um, you actually showed me the the Facebook post, and um, that the. Um, and the Facebook post was made by the daughter of the dairy farmer who was the subject of the story, and it was a very angry, heartfelt um, post, um, basically asking people why, you know, why they had failed, dairy, you know, the dairy farm. Why, you know, why weren't people buying more, lo- you know, buying locally more often, um, and. It, it was all. It was also centered around this um, family farm day that was happening. Like um, uh, I don't know, it must have been like a few miles up. It was. It was very close by, up like up the road that all these politicians were posing at this event um, at a kind of thriving beef farm. And she, you know, she was also saying, "Here are these politicians that have also failed us." And you know, my dad, you know, I'm never going to be able to, you know, wake up to the smell of like, you know manure or on uh, or you know hear the cows um and basically i went from there to talking to her father and you know looking at that kind of i guess on an emotional level as well of um you know having to move on from working as a as a dairy farmer all all your life as well as the daughter kind of sort of like looking back as her of her life growing up on a farm and her dad always being like this um you know this being his identity it was interesting to me because she was very I think she was very close in age to me and I don't know it was almost like I don't know to me almost like coming of age in a way for her and you know we went to the farm and took pictures but also um looking at it on a broad scale of why because I had kept I, I kept I had kept hearing about it um, you know co- I was covering some local elections before and I kept hearing issues about dairy farmers and you know they're suffering what what should we do to help them and so I started looking at it on a broad scale of you know basic of basically why are why is milk why is dairy not making a lot of money anymore um, and essentially it's that we have too much of it. There's huge operations that are producing lots and lots of milk and dairy products. Um, countries around the world aren't necessarily taking our products any anymore. Um, at the time, there was the trade deal going on with um, NAFTA and with China, and um, that was also central to that as well, especially with um, Canada. And you know, when I spoke to pe- people on the state level, the answers kind of were uh, kind of unsatisfying. Yeah, 
I was going to say Milk Toast are mediocre. I mean, they were talking about branding local products, that sort of thing. And I remember asking, you know, what if we had something that, I'm forgetting what the actual name of it is, but, you know, that would limit, you know, the amount of milk that a farmer could produce. And he said, farmers don't want that. And I went to the farm, and I spoke to the farmer, and he kind of just laughed, and he's like, yeah, the big farmers don't want that. You know, not someone like me. Like, I think that would, you know, he said he thought that would help, and I thought it was interesting. So that was interesting, as well as, um, and I'll just mention this quickly as well, the last story I did on the invasive, um, two invasive plants that are um, sort of devastating local farmers, which are the um, spotted knapweed and the wild poisonous parsnip and the spotted knapweed is problematic because it is just spread so quickly and you know basically chokes out um crops like hay and the poisonous parsnip because it just gives sort of devastating burns if you come in contact with it so <laughs> i'll sum it up there because i realize we're kind of running yes, short on but time that was also a powerful story because it had local farmers mm-hmm. that were hurt by this larger issue and again no satisfying answers so no. we'll keep keep at it and hope hope they come up with some answers so sean you're going to close us out of our year ender uh, i had two favorites actually um one was the story of seven-year-old ben longale who we heard of through maddie's mark um uh, a not-for-profit who read you know, who gives local kids wishes. Um, he now is seven years old and had survived a rare form of cancer as well as two liver transplants. Um, he had had his first one, I think, within a few weeks of being born, and then at three years old had cancer. The cancer was so bad that it destroyed his transplanted liver and he spent months I believe uh, at Boston Children's Hospital um, he's totally fine now but it was just sitting there watching a child who was next to death's door for years just not a care in the world was just one of the most moving things that have been part of. And you took great pictures of him in his little tree house. And I remember you wrote, he was like an, an older man <laughs> because yeah. his wish wasn't to go, I don't know, where kids want to go, Disneyland maybe. Mm-hmm. His wish was to have a backyard. And it was, it was just a really yeah. moving story. And then my other favorite was um, recent, not that recently, um, the traveling Vietnam Memorial Wall came through Gildan and Towers and the Park and I got to talk with uh, veteran Ed Zucre for a number of hours and he did not once not answer one of my questions and I would ask I started to ask since he would let me I started asking more and more questions really tough questions and he was more than willing to answer them, almost, I don't know if it was a therapy session or what, but he answered the questions that a lot of people wouldn't answer, and he was just one of the best people I've ever met. Wow. Well, 
thank you, our three intrepid reporters, and we look forward to our readers and our listeners tuning in <laughs> for 2019. And we'll be back at the end of the year to tell you all about it. Thank you, Melissa. <laughs>